0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: welcome to the fighting on film podcast the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies from the normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords if it's been captured on film we're going to try and cover it I'm Robbie of r Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms
2: and the Armourer's Bench. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fighting on Film. This week you join us as we trudge through the jungles of Vietnam and reoccupy an old French colonial fort with Baird Lancaster. It is, of course, Go Tell the Spartans from 1978.
1: One of the first Vietnam War films to come out of Hollywood Um, will come out of America after the war. Green Berets comes out in 1968 and that was like the first proper fictionalized Vietnam War film wasn't it? Yeah there's a couple
2: of small ones there's one about a marine pilot that goes down like I think it's called the Yank in Vietnam. Right. That came out in like 65 which is super early actually when you think about it. This one I think is the first retrospective but then I think that Green Berets is kind of similar in in, in some respects it's base defense it's a big classic icon of of hollywood in Mm. Bert lancaster and john wayne in vietnam in roles that they're probably too old to be playing yeah but green berets is the is that first big vietnam movie it's unique in that it comes out during the war itself
1: exactly it comes out well around the time well not around the time of the tet offensive but the same year so it's yeah. an interesting film in that regards. Um, but no, this week is "Go Tell the Spartans," um, and it's the first of that late seventies, a lot of war movie, uh, Vietnam war movies that we get with "The Deer Hunter," uh, "Boys of Company C." Uh, we get, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the big one is "Apocalypse Now," um, and then you get the the late eighties sort of revival with mm-hmm. "War on the Fourth of July," "Hamburger Hill," "Furmanal Jacket." You know, these, they're, you know, these films that sort of transcend Platoon. the war movie genre yeah. exactly Platoon. Um, but it's really interesting to see Go Tell the Spartans tell a different story of the Vietnam War than we're sort of used to seeing. I think when we think of Vietnam War movies, we think of Apocalypse Now, don't we? We think of Platoon. We think of that mid-war
2: aesthetic and it's a slugfest. It's yeah. trudging through rice paddies, jungles. It's stalemate, really terrible counterinsurgency warfare.
1: Yeah,
2: but this is this is as you say it's an earlier incarnation of that war and it's just on the cusp of american involvement it's set mm. in 64 so we're about three four years in maybe a bit more actually considering that late 50s was when the first mags are reality well, it was
1: 1950 that harry s truman sent the first mag into the Indochina to aid the french right. in 1950 um so you know america had been in involved in that part of the world for you know, a couple of decades, um, mm, mm. when you think about it, but so this, yeah, this, as Matt was saying, this one tells the story of the MAG advisors at military assistance advisory group, Vietnam. So, uh, you know, as we'll talk about in the Alley Tally, they weren't just, um, in Vietnam, they are all over the world, actually where America had a sphere of influence and we join our cast and what a great way to segue into cast. We join our cast, um, as they are setting up their fire bases in, uh, a province or a Penang I think it is they're based in Penang and then they set up in a place called Mukwa but we're getting ahead of ourselves so I'll start us off with cast this week and then Matt is doing production so our lead role is Burt Lancaster playing Major Asa Barker he is a Korean War veteran I feel like he's sort of seeing out his career in Vietnam mm. um, he's got this sort of you know couldn't care less attitude sort of thing going all the way through it
2: yeah, he does. He, he carries it really well, actually. That that attitude that he has—it's devil may care almost. It's that's it. Yeah, it doesn't they can't feel touch like... me. I've already been passed over.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it doesn't feel like Lancaster would inhibit this role to the extent that he does. But he is one of the best things about this movie. It's such it's a some fun, great lines. Yeah, you know, swearing like a docker. It's a really great role. We know Bert Lancaster from Zulu, Dawn the, the next year. Um, Run Silent, Run Deep. Obviously, the sub the, the, the submarine movie. Um, in The Train, Castle Keep. You know, he's a big star, Mm. big star. And then we have Mark Singer as Captain Olivetti. Um, It was his first movie credit, and he went on to appear in the cult classics, the Beastmaster series. Have you seen Beastmaster, Matt? I haven't, no. What's that about? It's just like a fantasy sci-fi, but I think it's a bit of a cult classic. I mean, I think he's more oh, really no more well-known for that than than this. Not for me. He yeah. does it really well, actually, considering this is his
2: first mm. big credit. Um, yeah, I watched. He, uh... he carries that eager exec quite well.
1: Yeah, there's another part. There's a podcast called I think they're called the Not Another Pop Culture Podcast, and mm-hmm. they did a, a special with um, singer about Beastmaster. But he was saying how on set that he was really excited to act with Lancaster, and Lancaster was saying how. Oh, you know, I don't act, um, but now I'm getting older. Um, I'm not as um, good looking as I used to. Now I've got to learn how to act with the ladies, which was quite funny. Um, <laughs> if you seek that out, it's really good. They have some really nice scenes together, actually. Don't yeah, they, they do. They, they play off really nicely. You've got this eager young captain and you've got this sort of, you know, it's seen it all before, seen the world major. And they do play off each other really nicely. And then we have uh, Jonathan Goldsmith, who plays First Sergeant Oleanowski bittered grizzled sergeant he's been mm. in arm a long time you know he's sort of like burt lancaster in the fact that he's sort of had enough he's a little bit further over the edge than, than lancaster is isn't yeah he? you know he's seen maybe one too many combat missions um but the actor himself is really interesting you know do you remember the meme matt where was um i i may not be the best at this but i'm i am that and it was a guy with a bottle of beer do you remember that meme oh yeah that's him oh no way that's Jonathan Goldsmith yeah oh really so that meme from about 10 years ago that was doing the rounds he was the meme and it was actually a um uh, like a beer advert is that
2: on his Wikipedia article
1: yeah yeah
2: oh my god can you imagine having having a career where you've been in films with Bette Lancaster and then your Wikipedia article also includes the fun fact that you were a meme I think we'll probably
1: make one of our own of them and put it up on the Twitter, <laughs> which would be quite funny, but I thought that was great. But he was actually, uh, he was in um, Ice Station Zebra and the Shootist as well. Oh, was he? Oh, right. Okay. They're classics. All right, yeah, I didn't exactly. recognize him. I recognized him from the meme, but I didn't recognize him in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Craig Wasson uh, who plays Corporal Corsi. He's the draftee. He's your sort of sympathetic, um, sympathetic soldier. Uh, but he also appeared in the same year in The Boys of Company C, and he sings a theme tune of Boys of Company C, which I thought was quite interesting, a little connection to another war movie there. And then we have Joe Unger, or Joe Unger, I'm not too sure of the pronunciation, Unger. And he plays Lieutenant Hamilton, and he's the sort of gun ho mm-hmm. poster boy, we're-going-to-win-the-war sort of officer. He's a, um, Yeah, he's a... Uh...
2: Bit of a figure of fun, isn't he? Where he, he sends is. back these um the very boys own um yeah. we've we've encountered the enemy and we and we have them, you know, yeah, that kind of Stuff thing.
1: like yeah, he talks in like sort of commando-esque sound bites, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he talks he's, um, like he's yeah. Yeah, he's, he's he's on a he's giving the speech at the start to the that all the troops lined up and he's like, we are going to go into the woods and we are going to set up a defense for freedom or something. Yeah. A bastion of a bastion of, um, of hope and freedom. Freedom. That's it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and they all laugh at him. Uh, yeah. Lancaster has a great little line there where he, he says, General Patton's going to give a speech.
1: Yeah. I love that. It's great. The dialogue is <laughs> is, is top in this film, uh, but he was also in an, a, a nightmare on Elm street. and I'm not familiar with that one. So he plays a role in that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then we have Evan C. Kim as Cowboy, the half French, half Vietnamese translator. And um, he was perhaps best known for his role as uh, Inspector Al Kwan in The Deadpool. Oh, really? OK. Yeah. I'm not yeah. familiar. I don't. I haven't seen many of the Dirty Harry films. So, I mean, you might. yeah, know that I know the me. one. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, he is. That's right. That's yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And he plays. That's, the he, he's,
2: um, he's, he's Harry's partner. Yeah. Oh well there you go then. Yeah, that's a nice yeah, little Rob's connection. Rob's just getting into into the 70s um, detective <laughs> films. He's just watched Death Wish One.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, he's you know you've got a lot to work through there, Rob. And then then you can get to the day higher
1: films. It's gonna spend all my time watching these movies for the show for everyone. That's <laughs> you know, I'm doing you all a great service, everyone. I've gonna have to do a spin-off. <laughs> Next up we have Dolph Sweet. He plays General Hartnitz, he's the sort of commanding officer in the in the area. Typical general doesn't know the war on the ground. gives Gibbs, um, Major Barker grief for what the men are wearing, things like that. You know, it's it's sort of an allegory for the the powers that be not knowing anything about the war in the, in the country, which I think is quite interesting. Classic general in war movies vibes. Yeah, he reminds me of the general out of Kelly's Heroes. Yes, in, in he that sort of it. same Which name. is, a, which,
2: is um, which is a compliment.
1: Um, but the guy Dolph himself actually served as a navigator on B twenty B twenty fours in the Eighth Air Force. And uh, he was shot down over Romania um, and in the prisoner of war camp, he put on, he helped put put on shows for the prisoners of war. So that's what got him into acting. Oh, cool. Lancaster was in uh, the USO, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, but he's probably best known for his lead role in an American sitcom called give me a break. Um, I've never seen it, but apparently that's what no, happened either. best known for. Mm. And, and really, I mean, that was the cast of any note because it's a, if it's an indi- independent production. I mean, Matt will go into to the production in a second, but um, Bert Lancaster is your main standout really here. Everyone else is... Yeah. I'm not saying they're playing second fiddle to Lancaster, but everyone else is sort of... They're playing a cliche, I think. They're, yeah, they're not on the same level with
2: the characterization that they're given, are they? One other person of note is Corporal Old Man. The writer of the movie actually refers to him uh, in one of the articles I read. Uh, daniel ford and he's played by james hong he's 92 now and he's still active and he has one of the the longest careers um of of any of any hollywood actor that he's really good in this actually Mm. he has a little relationship with with doesn't he where
1: that's it um, yeah
2: chalky saves him and then he saves Chelsea basically at the end doesn't he he does but in terms of production it's it's an equally interesting film in that it has quite an interesting background because it was written by a uh, correspondent uh, for The Nation, which was an American magazine, a weekly uh, hmm. in the 60s. Um, and it was written by a chap called Daniel Ford, who was an award-winning correspondent actually for his work in Vietnam. And he wrote a novel called Instant at Mokwa*, um, which was based on a patrol he went on with the mag. They passed through an airstrip or an airfield that had been set up by the French like a decade earlier and abandoned and there was a small cemetery of three graves there um, of French soldiers which had been killed in the area and he saw this and when he came to write the novel a couple of years later it was published in 1967 uh, he took this and he meshed it with an idea of the the Spartans at Thermopylae and their last stand and that's where the, the, the much larger cemetery of French soldiers that have been defending this fort that the 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 uh, that characters from the film reoccupy. And the film was optioned by uh, a, a fairly well-known screenwriter, uh, Wendell Mays, and he'd done uh, The Enemy Below in 57, The Hunters yeah. in 58, a Korean War movie, uh, Von Ryan's Express in Harm's Way, oh, and nice. uh, Death Wish, as well actually uh, i see yeah. yeah so he wrote the screenplays for those and he he actually bought the rights to the book adapted it but the book wasn't a big success right out the gate um apparently about fifteen thousand copies were, were printed and a lot of them were, were were pulped or incinerated that's a shame um yeah i was reading a really interesting article by daniel ford himself and he has a, a website which he's put some articles up on uh, talking about the film and experiences in Vietnam and other stuff. And he he re- recounts that the book didn't do so well, but Mays optioned it and continued to option it yearly on a renewal until he managed to shop it around to a studio.
1: That's good.
2: And during that time, they attached a number of quite well-known actors really. They, they attached Robert Mitchum, William Holden, and Paul Newman, amongst others. Mays adapted the book a little bit, changed some of the characters. So originally the Chaucy character was the lead role, um, but that was adapted in the actual uh, adaptation. And the, the the Major Barker role was given a lot more meat. So the the film was actually picked up in 1977 um, and it was given a budget of 1.5 million with Bert Lancaster attached in the role as Major Barker. The film was directed by Ted Post, uh, He worked on a number of films, including Hang'em High and Magnum Force. There's a Dirty Harry movie for you Yeah, nice,
1: yeah.
2: And a lot of TV. He worked on combat in the early 60s. The cinematography was by uh, Harry Strandling Jr., who was twice Oscar nominated and probably best known within the war movie genre for doing the cinematography for uh, Midway in 1976, so a couple of years earlier. Oh, okay, nice. And the score was by uh, Dick Halligan. which The score's not intrusive, but it works quite well no it's not i think the mm. score really it, it does some of those tropey bits where it, it, there's instrumentation wise it's very this is vietnam um or this is in the jungle
1: dun, 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 dun. you know that when you, you know that when you get that sort of like that chime thing they go dun, 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 like you get it in every single tension film.
2: tension right there. that's
1: it yeah yeah yeah
2: <laughs> speaking of jungle it wasn't filmed in the jungle it was in fact filmed in in california
1: yeah, that blew my mind actually. It it does look all right, doesn't it? It's not. Yeah, well, it's, it's
2: doing a classic combat, and it's doing a classic um, objective Burma, where yeah. they they're filming in in California. Well, there's a reason why they picked Hollywood for being a centre of film, isn't it? Because it had so many different climates, and it could pull off so many different looks. Well,
1: bring California, bring Vietnam to us. Goddammit, get me Boyd Lancaster. <laughs>
2: So as I say, the film was um, filmed in uh, California and Ford actually said in the article I read, I'd experienced the land almost African in its wide vistas, towering clouds and cruel scarcity of water. The movie gave us prototypical jungle, oppressive and soggy, which it, that's a classic Nam trope, isn't it? Yeah. Perhaps that's, that's what people are expecting after mm. watching 10 years of Vietnam news footage. Yeah, of course. It, that's the Stomping thing. through jungle and, and rice paddy.
1: People would know that look; they'd know it yeah. better than they would know perhaps what the Bocage looks like in Normandy. They're going to know what yeah. San looks like. They're going to know what Hue looks like. It is this? It is interesting in that sense that this is these movies are sort of the first sort of movies that the general public have more of an idea of how they should look as well.
2: I don't actually know whereabouts um, Ford was when he was doing his uh, his correspondent work from Vietnam, but. The geography of vietnam changes and is so varied yeah so it's really interesting that ironically they they made california look like a jungle when the reality of ford what he experienced was closer to what the actual climate in parts of california is actually like it's dry and, and a little bit dusty and that that rounds us out for production as I said, it had a budget of about 1.5 million. I couldn't find uh, information on what its box office was. Mm. I do know that they fell a little bit short on the production, and Lancaster stepped in with about 150 thousand um, dollars of his production company's money, and helped boost that a little bit and and make sure that the film actually was finished.
1: Big money, but throwing his money around. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I, he was a clever man. He diversified and he produced a lot of movies. Mm. I know that um,
1: I've read that he said he said that he really enjoyed the script of the mm. movie. So I think he well, you can tell in the movie that he's, he's loving the, the character. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. I think there's there's a there's
1: enjoyment
2: behind the portrayal yeah. he's, he's giving, isn't there?
1: Yeah, exactly. And you can't exactly tell where the real where the production money starts and where the Lancaster money comes in. It's not like they've stopped shooting for months and something feels off about the production i mean sometimes you get out now when they do and you can sort of tell someone's wearing a wig or you know mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like the lack of money affected the movie at all i don't think
2: no no it must have been it must have been either during filming and they realized there would be a shortfall what, what do you think about the film in terms of its quality because we spoke about this before we started recording and i, I think mm. it does have a bit of a it's not Peak A grade blockbuster in its vibe and feel, is it?
1: I felt like it had like a B movie feel to it. If you have told me that if like someone like Orion had made it, you know, like the people that made RoboCop, like if they'd have made mm-hmm. it. I felt like it was It just has that sort of B movie type '80s feel to it. Yeah, it, it, something about I, it. I don't know whether it's the the color palette, the grading of the movie, or it, I mean, it could
2: be it could be the film stock it was yeah, shot it could on. Be. Or, yeah. To,
1: something about it because there's a lot of flat mid shots of people talking and something about the camera work it's a little bit flat at times and it just it gave me that sort of video-y type i don't know how to describe it um something I do think it compares with it. something say like um
2: firepost gloria a little bit like that i think it doesn't have the scale of firebase gloria i would say or green berets for that matter
1: yeah yeah true But i think it because it's a smaller tale of because it feels like a second world war movie at, at, at points it's like a platoon mm. on a mission and i mean i think i'm, I'm paraphrasing what Robert said about it in 1982 when they reappraised the film um, for their for their review show in the states but he said like falls down because it, it it's not it doesn't transcend its own story so with apocalypse now that movie's got that copper feel to it it's big and it's bold you've got hamburger hill which is really gritty and visceral Furmo jacket is about the psyche of war and how it affects people, but this one is just a little bit okay. We need to go here and do the mission. Isn't Vietnam horrible? Mm, something missing. It, of, it about does movie. feel
2: it does feel confined, but I found that it worked because it's set in the jungle, okay, um, and it gives you that sense of uh trepidation because the Viet Cong could be anywhere. And in the end, they do pop up out of foxholes and and, and ambush the. The, the mag team as they're trying to I leave. felt
1: they didn't do enough of that, it felt like it was doing everything it wanted to do in the last 20 minutes.
2: I know what you mean. If you compare it to, say, um, if you compare it to Green Berets, again, um, there's a lot of that jungle, uh, improvised booby trap stuff going on. The soldier gets impaled in the chest. Someone stands on a punji stick pit. Um, yes. There's claymores getting set off by Vietnamese ambush patrols. Mm. Um, but you don't get as much of that. You get a little bit where there's a, v- um, a Viet Cong roadblock. That's
1: um, it, which
2: yeah. Which isn't typical of that jungle no. um, bamboo punchy stick sort of um, booby trap stuff that we, 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 we mentally associate with Vietnam. Yeah, but. We get a little bit of a little bit of it at the end, as you say. It does put a lot of it into the last twenty minutes. I think so.
1: Maybe let's I mean, maybe it might be interesting to read a review from the time, mm. see what they were thinking at the time. So we've got one from the Daily Mirror, and it's from the thirtieth of June, nineteen seventy-eight, and the reviewer is Arthur thrifle and he says, "Military misfits: The Vietnam War was a traumatic experience for Americans, and they're still trying to purge their conscience in numerous films." Go Tell the Spartans is set in the early days of the conflict when Americans were acting as military advisors to the corrupt South Vietnamese regime. Burt Lancaster plays Major Barker, an ageing professional soldier in charge of a group of military misfits who would be hard put to prevent a bun fight in a kindergarten. This is no great anti-war film. Many of the characters are from the Hollywood factory, but its heart is in the right place. I don't think you can say fairer than that, really. I I kind of do agree with this guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's It's
2: very straightforward in plot and Mm. and true. I think Lancaster was 64, 65 when the film was made. Yeah. So he's a little bit old at this point, even for a passed over major. Mitchum would have been too old as well. Oh, yeah. All the other guys that were associated with the role probably would have been too old
1: for it. I feel like it it wanted to trade off of these guys' previous war movie glory. You know what I mean? It wanted to just be like, oh, it's a war film, so we have to get someone like Mitchum or... You know, like about a Lancaster, because they're known for yeah war elder statesmen
2: sort of actors that can that, that pull type, in an yeah. audience still. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And another aspect of it is with the cast and, and the way the characters are characterized is that it's a lot of tropes from former war films and a lot of Vietnam tropes that would emerge. So, uh, you've got the 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 grizzled NCO who's on the edge. You've got the gung ho second lieutenant as you mentioned earlier robin in then you've got some of the new tropes being introduced where you've got a drug-addled medic who's addicted to opium and that's something we'll see time and time again in later vietnam films and those ideas and depictions are are grounded in historical fact but i think it's really interesting that they decided to insert that into a film set in 1964
1: where i think yeah you get this feeling it's trying to show you that the war was already lost Oh, yeah, well, 100%. It, 100% yeah, get that. The end of Everything. the film, which
2: we'll discuss in a bit, absolutely points out
1: it's 2020 hindsight, isn't it, from the film? Massively. Um, but we, yet again, we we wanted to ask your opinions, um, dear listeners. And we put it up on our uh, Twitter again, for, at Fighting at On, fighting on Film. Beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> and we were asking again for your one word reviews because last week they were very interesting. And this week we have. David Bobber says one word, cowboy. Rubber says, or Rubber Comedy on Twitter, he says uh, decent. And then Brian Williams uh, sums it up by saying, far too good a film for one word. So some varied ones again there, but I think people people really like this movie, it would seem, on on the Twitter, um, for what we could gather. It definitely has its place within the genre. It does, of, yeah.
2: Of Vietnam War movies, definitely. Not only because it's it's portraying an interesting period, but also it's it's a competently made film and it it stands up and it's an interesting look mm. at that early war, that early period of the war that
1: doesn't really get depicted in other films. No, it doesn't. So just before we go into Ali Alitalic, we will just quickly give you a rundown of the of the plot. So this Mag team are are tasked with establishing a a fire base. They're, they're tasked with
2: reoccupying an old French position, aren't they? And yeah. At this point, the area that the Bert Lancaster's character, Major Barker, is is commanding, is very thinly stretched. He's working with like a local militia, and he's working with the um the ABRN. He's he has a finite team with which to parcel out and advise these elements. It basically packs off like the his own recruits. Troops.
1: Yeah, yeah, just sends them out. You get this great little sequence where he's the replacements sort of that have getting them all Go, in this well, like they'll do. Yeah, you know, you get this sort of um, wild geese-esque rotation of the men showing you who they are and it, what their tropes is A bit of a classic be. trope. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um but it's it's and that's your, your plot is basically these guys in Mukwa setting up this fire base, but Lancaster back at the back at base, trying to command them the best he can, one hand tied behind his back from from um. Harnets because he doesn't know what he's doing, and then what another hand tied behind his back because the South Vietnamese are the ones that hold all the heavy weapons. So he's got got to work, yeah, and the manpower and the manpower, and then you've got the the powers that be, the top brass, being like, "Well, we're going to tell you where the the Vietnamese are going to attack because we mm-hmm. know best." And he's sort of on the ground, being like, "You don't know the war that I'm fighting." So it's there's a lot going on, but then again, I think that's when the movie falls flat because there's almost too much going on at some points
2: there is well there's so much to, to convey isn't there with with vietnam and one of the aspects of that i liked was those introductions to the the new replacements which are arriving shows his weariness and shows his okay i yeah. know these type type of guys i know that type of soldier chaucy's character is a draftee and he's volunteered to be in vietnam yeah. he extended his his term of service for another six months as an old soldier lancaster's characters can't quite understand why he's doing that yeah until the end of the film when it becomes clear that he wants to be a hero he's a tourist another one of lancaster's great lines in this you're a tourist and i'm sorry we couldn't give you
1: a better war that's it yeah you know? yeah exactly yeah it's a great line love it but i think the, the movie is sort of uh i got it in my notes it's like an allegory for buying off more than you can chew and that's what i think that it's trying to say about the american war in vietnam is that if the MAG advisory teams couldn't do anything with the local troops, then what are more, you know, U.S. That hindsight again, gonna do? not And the,
2: the general character actually says, well...
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: we can't win this war until we've got American ground troops here.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
2: yeah, that yeah. wouldn't be for another year or so. Yeah. Um. But it it's foreshadowing that greater involvement that was coming. And I liked another part of that scene, actually at the beginning where he's in his office and it comes down on, down the line that they need to reconnoiter this camp and an old village. Yeah. and See whether it's worth setting up a, uh, a fire base there or a base there a patrol base. And he says, just, just make it up, make up the report. Say there's 200 Vietnamese there. Yes, um, It's not suitable. There's no need. There's no enemy activity in the area and it's not suitable for uh, a patrol base or any other kind of activity in the area. It's not needed. And it backfires on him because it turns out that it's been abandoned for 10 years and no one's lived yeah. there. The The general is adamant. There's going to be a, another, uh, another base there. And Lancaster has one of his best lines in that sequence. That's what happened to the French, tied down in static defence, because they're setting up all these little patrol bases.
1: So I think on that note, maybe we should go into the Alley Tally this week, because there's a lot of interesting things to talk about.
2: Oh, there is, yeah.
0: It's time for Alley Tally on Fighting on Film.
1: So this week, I wanted to kick off by talking about how this movie sort of bucks the trend of how we imagine the US combat trooper in Vietnam. When we think about Vietnam War films, to a lot of us, it'll be Apocalypse Now, it'll be Platoon, it'll be Hamburger Hill, it'll be these late war. And I think we think of uh, American troops with third pattern um, jungle fatigues, with the the slanted uh, pockets, paratrooper-esque type fatigues, Mm -hmm. you know, peace and love written on their helmet. Liners, m16s gunships flying all around but this movie bucks that trend because it shows the mag as we've said that the military assistance advisory group in country wearing their very plain um american og uh, olive green 107 shirts with their white name tapes yeah big us army badges on um you know wearing sort of a mishmash of world war ii and uh, m56 webbing and it's a very different look to what we associate with Vietnam. I know that if, you, if you're if you a Vietnam aficionado, you'll know that the early combat troops in Vietnam were wearing that sort of uniform as well. But to see these MAG troops who look like they could have fought in the Korean War, or they could mm-hmm. have fought in the Pacific in the um, like 1944-45, to see them in, in Vietnam is, is a lot are very different, but it shows that sort of how long the Americans have been in Vietnam. And, and that is uh, translated in the weapons as well. So... A lot of the men are running M1 carbines with the thirty-round magazines. Second World War weaponry, still. I think that's very interesting. It's just something that this movie is showing uh, the audiences. They might not be accustomed to, which I thought was quite a good thing in the movie. One of the things I really enjoyed about
2: it. Yeah, it's definitely a positive. It's it's um it's a period of the war that is not often depicted, and it's no. interesting to see it. And as you said, like the the arban have got um, M1 Garands. M2 carbines, Thompsons, uh, BARs. It's all yeah. Second World War kit, and it makes complete sense. We won't see those iconic weapons of what we now associate with the Vietnam War for another few years yet. Um, the film's set in 64, but the M16 wouldn't be introduced as as standard in the theatre for another four years. Um, mm.
1: But MAG did have them. They, they, did, they, they yeah. were the
2: first people to get them.
1: Yeah, they did. But you also see as well, like the jungle stripe camo, like as a mm. a holdover from like Indochina. I know that Havertz and Harnitz in the movie says, oh, those French style fatigues because um, mm. the the French wore like duck. Like the tiger stripe. Tiger stripe. But they also wore like duck hunter type um, mm. uniforms. I wish I just had a few more different sort of weapons, you know, like maybe a, a sort of a Carl Gustav SMG or a, a Mat 49 SMG, something just a little bit mm. more different. Could you also see mag forces training up South Vietnamese soldiers with like Stenmark 2s and, and Car 98s and things like that. I just wish there'd been a little yeah. bit more variation, maybe just to show the the real uniqueness of MAG at the time. Um, but I think there's a, it's a decent representation, personally. They were training um,
2: counterinsurgency forces, weren't they, they in were, local as defense well, yeah. units and that sort of thing. So the the plethora of different weapons and surplus that, that congealed and, and congregated in, in Vietnam, after after the Second World War is really interesting, and we get glimpses of that. So mm. James Hong's character is seen with a, a, a Mosin Nagant M91. Yes, um, full you know the the classic full length Mosin Nagant. Uh, he's also seen with a uh, a Gewehr 98 as well at one point. Yeah, so it sort he, it of switches out. doesn't he? Yeah. And then all of those um, the the militia guys that there's I think they're supposed to be Montegard. I know they're based on Montegard great shotguns they're all armed with winchester 1897s and 1912s and side by sides yeah just this selection of 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 weapons that really you, you know if you're going up against the Viet Cong, you you wouldn't really want to be using a side by side would you
1: well, that's what Linowski mentions, doesn't he? He says, you know, these guys are armed with shotguns. What are they going to do? It's another allegory. It's like, well, we need, we're need we going to need more than what we're giving them to, to do anything, put a dent in yeah. there. I know that giving, like, the Arvin troops M-16s was even a thing of contention when the when the M-16 came in. I know they, they got a lot of hand-me-downs um, from the American troops. Think about that is that when they were appraising
2: the M-16, or as it was at the, at the beginning of the war, the AR-50, Um they were thinking about well, these lighter weapons with a less powerful cartridge or a less sharply recoiling cartridge would be much better for these smaller stature guys. Right. And that was one of the re- that was one of the recommendations that went through and said we should equip the entire South Vietnamese army with M16s or you know AR15s. And that was one of the driving forces to equipping soldiers that were stationed and deployed to Vietnam with M16s eventually. Okay. Um, Ironically, it would be years before they began to get the M16 because it was prioritised to US troops who arguably would have handled the, the heavier weapons better because they were yeah exactly. statured. Um, it's like
1: you still see Arvin troops in like 67, 68 running M1 car- M one Garands and M1 carbines. And you're like, how on earth are yeah. they going to fight the, the Viet Cong with... The ARs, M1918A2s. Yeah, and the Viet Cong are running AK-47s and... Machine guns and all this sort of heavy, wet, like Russian equipment. And you're like, well, you're not helping them help themselves. If that's the point of the war. It's, it's, yeah. it's another thing the movie does, I think, hint upon.
2: Lancaster himself carries a uh, M3 Grease gun. It's not an M3A1 because it's still got the charging handle. You can see it when he's got it hung in his office behind him. You can just see the charging handle, I think. Um, and it doesn't have that awful flash out of the added to the conical thing that looks like a, a lampshade gets to fire it towards the end of the film, and and there's a couple of the other guys that are equipped with them. Um, The young second lieutenant has uh, an M1928A1 Thompson. He does. That was nice to see as well. um, A couple of the South Vietnamese Army guys do as well. They're all armed with uh, M1 Garands and M2 Carbines, so you can spot that Thompson
1: whenever someone's got one. Yeah, you can. I wonder if Lancaster having the grease gun was... Meant to be like a holdover from his days in Korea. The grease gun saw a lot of action in Korea, so I wondered if it was like tied into his character. Maybe, but I, mm. I, I again, I reckon
2: probably there was a lot of mag guys that did carry them.
1: Yeah, yeah um, I can see them. I've definitely seen them. It yeah. would have been,
2: as you were saying earlier, but it would have been really cool to have seen him with um
1: a very early AR-15. That would, you know, prong flash hider, waffle mags. Would have been good. I thought it'd been funny for him to carry an M16 and then him never use it and him have like the most iconic weapon but him just like walking around with it. That would have
2: been very accurate, wouldn't it? I would
1: have liked that, yeah. Yeah. You see a lot, you see a few, if you watch mag video, like training films or newsreel footage, you see the COs with M16s and the other lads just walking around with M1 or M2 carbines. It would have been a nice touch. It would have been. It would have been really cool. It works, I think, in terms of the weaponry,
2: it definitely fits with the period. And again, it gives you that visual separation of the
1: period from the later Vietnam uh,
2: portrayals and, and this era.
1: Boys in Company C, literally the same year, they've all got M16s.
2: What's your, what's your alley pick then?
1: Well, as I say, it was, it was just to see the, the, the separation of kit, really.
2: I think mine's Cowboy's crop
1: top. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder what he was doing halfway through that. I was like, why is he wearing a crop top in the jungle? Like, a, crop,
2: a crop top and a uh, revolver
1: in a shoulder holster is a look. Uh, with a machete on your back. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. He looks very, very alley in the sense of the word. Indeed.
2: Indeed. The other um interesting bit of kit in the in the film is the uh, the appearance of some Sikorsky C34 Choctaws, mm. which um not quite right, but it's it's again, it's that visual differentiation between Huey's and, and Chinooks. Um obviously at the time it would have been um uh, H-21 Shawnees, which were the, the army helicopter in Vietnam. Right. And then I believe later the Marine Corps used the, um, the Choctaw the, the C, uh, C-34 CH-34. We all have different names for them, so Rob and I were talking about this before. We, were, we identified it initially as, a, as a, a Westland Wessex. Yep. Iconic British Cold War helicopter but the Wessex was obviously um, produced under license from Sikorsky.
1: Okay, so that's cleared that up for me. I didn't know that. So
2: yeah, interesting, isn't it? Mm. But again, it's that differentiation between the periods. So we get to see uh, CH thirty fours instead of Hueys, and there's a there's a Bell Sioux, which is probably um, more associated with uh, the
1: Korean War and MASH. Yeah, it sort of comes in and fires some rockets, doesn't it? Shoots some rockets at some VC. So they they were interesting little. Inclusions, I thought. You can't and... have a Vietnam War thing without helicopters. You just can't.
2: No, exactly.
1: Exactly. It's in, it's in, the, con- it's in the contract of every single <laughs> Vietnam War movie ever made. It's a necessity. Heaven forbid them make a way movie with tanks. Jesus Christ, that would blow people's minds. But that's for another day. So I think we'll go on to favourite scenes.
2: Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support.
1: Now back to the show. What have you got this week for your favourite scene? I struggled this week, I have to admit. Um, it's the first time I've struggled with a favourite scene for a while, actually. Um, I didn't. It's not that like I didn't like the movie at all, don't get me wrong, I did like it. I'm not saying it's not of any merit, because the movie is okay, but the one thing I do want to just highlight is how well I think But Lancaster nails his character in this movie. I I he's my favorite thing about it. He gets some, yeah. he gets the best dialogue. He, he gets the best. I think he's got a really good look about him. I know his limp was self-afflicted from a golfing injury a few years before the movie was filmed, but it really adds to his look. You see him limping everywhere. You know, he, he's always smoking a cigar. He's, it's an old he's just, soldier limp. Yeah. Old soldier, yeah. He just really in, in, inca- encapsulates this that the, the the sort of character they want him to go for. Because I think. By the end of the movie, of course, he's um, sympathetic to the Vietnamese. He wants to save the villagers that he sort of found and, and, and helped at the firebase earlier on. And there's a young girl that he sort of likes um, and he wants to sort of save them. He doesn't believe that they're evil, they're communists or anything like that. And, and he stays behind.
2: He, he, he feels almost uh, bound by Chaucy's decision to stay, doesn't he?
1: That's it. Yeah. And he shows, it shows him as this sort of, okay, I, I get what you're doing. I understand now, you know, I might not have seen your, your, your reasoning at the beginning, but he knows that you've got to do right by these people, at least, you know, these people, but he's still trying to say that it's their war, you know,
2: mm. come he on. Chaucy wants to be a hero, doesn't he? That's what he says. Exactly. Um, he's like,
1: you know, you're trying to be a H-E-R-O, a hero just has other great lines as well it was um the Wattsburg character the the psyops guy he says that the the Ma- the the fire uh, firebase isn't priority anymore to not worry about it and as um Bert lancaster goes to get in the chopper to go and exfil the evacuate the the american uh, troops there he says to him <laughs> watsburg do you love your commanding officer and the guy says yes he says that's fine because i love you too and he just walks off like, it's so bizarre it's such fuck? a weird line It's so great
2: yeah some great ones though there's a bit where he's talking to i think he's the talking to the xo and he says my men are spread thinner than the hairs on a baby's ass
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or he might have been the general actually one of the like first bit like, scenes you see him sitting down there talking about the plot he goes oh where's this place that like, muck fuck or whatever it's called and you're yeah. like he just doesn't give a shit and then you get this great tale that he, he tells that, that, that the officers mess with um uh Captain Olivetti and he's saying how like some officers are gentlemen and I'm not a gentleman you know have you ever thought well I'm not a major and he goes in this massive spiel about how he getting in a blowjob like in front of the president And it's just like not something I expected Burt Lancaster to be having a monologue about but it's yeah. just so encapsulating and like it's so interesting Burt Lancaster made this movie better than some of his parts for me it's, just... it's the bit
2: way he goes well i did what i was trained to do i
1: saluted <laughs> saluted it's brilliant <laughs> i was i had be cracking up it's just some great dialogue in the movie and i think but Bert, but it's my favorite thing what about you matt
2: you mentioned it a little bit there and um, the the, the psyops chap who arrives midway through uh to introduce the instant flow priority indicator mm-hmm. um and he has a number of really good little scenes with lancaster again and it's it's that, that actor's in, uh, interaction with Lancaster that, it, that that makes those scenes. So Lancaster's the as we've said, he's the experienced soldier. He understands the situation on the ground via his own, um, I guess, a mixture of what he's seen and a sort of sixth sense in that he knows that there's areas that the BC are going to be more active in. And he knows that Mukwa is going to be a magnet if the VC know that they're there. Um, and it's clear that they do pretty soon, as soon as they set up uh, communications. And this poor psyops officer is trying to explain flow diagrams and indices and indexes and how the computers in Saigon are working out the, the potential for an attack here, there, and everywhere. And it takes all the information and it makes an average and it works out the flow indicator in the process. and Lancaster just sat there going, what the fuck? <laughs> he's just got this what the fuck face so on. like
1: despondent. He's like,
2: What? How's that gonna help? Um, and he, he just sums it up by going, You're gonna tell me when the enemy are gonna attack. And the SEROPS officer just goes, basically, yes. <laughs> and he, he then holds up the um the incident flow priority indicator. And you're thinking, from all the spiel he's he's given, it's gonna be something, you know, interesting spectacular technological and it's just a board with three little shelves in different colors yellow orange red color-coded to threat threat levels
1: and then it's above the door and he just ignores it every time he walks past yeah it. so the, and there's
2: a scene where there's a scene where um they've been drinking it's just after the blowjob explanation scene of yes. why he's been passed over for, for promotion so many times which I love, by the way, I love the bit where he's like, yeah, yeah the, the Joint Chiefs have a a, a secret hidden list in, deep in the Pentagon vaults that every time someone comes up for promotion, they go and check. And I'm on that list and I'm, on I'm that never list. getting a promotion. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, but he, he opens his office door and the guy is in there putting in the little um, name tags of the positions, the the, uh, the patrol bases into this indicator. And he's on a on like a ladder behind the door, and he gets thrown. It's the best bit of stunt work in the whole film, actually. He gets thrown onto onto his desk, and he's like, "What the hell are you doing behind the door? What are you doing in my office?" Yeah, it's
1: like absolutely pissed out of his head. Yeah, it's great.
2: It's great. It's just it, those little scenes. They kind of poked fun at the, I, I guess the the McNamara approach to Vietnam, yeah. where it's very <laughs> very mechanical and methodical and data driven. Yeah, um, compared to old soldier, experienced on the yeah. ground, knows what's right. going on. I like
1: that about it. It was just, yeah. I just was so shocked to see one of the elder statesman esque Hollywood actors in Burke Lancaster just being this sort of foul, mouthed soldier. I wasn't expecting it. So I think this week, that wraps things up. We'll go to final thoughts. What do you think of go tell the spartans
2: i enjoyed it i thought it was um it was trying to do some things that other vietnam films wouldn't approach for a few more years i thought it was mm. interesting that they it was obviously made with a lot of hindsight it's yeah one of the earliest post-war movies competent cast not, not the best cinematography it's well shot mm. as you said some of those conversational scenes are a little bit flat a bit static yeah the environment and the mise-en-scene's good. You know, the, the, the psyops guy was drinking a Coke, uh, the radio op toffee had some great comic relief. Um, again, that's another one of those tropes from, that we were talking about earlier. But there's lots of really nice little things to like about the film. And as we've banged on about, we like that differentiation of the periods. So it's, a, it's an earlier phase of the war. And I think that makes the film all the more enjoyable because it's something we aren't as familiar with. We aren't mm. expecting certain things to happen or the ways things are going to evolve. Um, that's kind of let down a little bit by some of it being a little bit tropey, not mm. only from earlier Second World War movies and Korean War movies where it's a squad and it has their, their delegated roles as characters, yeah. but also from some of the stuff that would, would creep in later. So like, as, you, as we said, Toffee's character is a little bit counterculture, we've mm. got the the, the addled um medic who is called Abraham Lincoln and delivers the um a speech while oh that fucking out scene is so weird
1: yeah It doesn't really work it didn't add for anything me. yeah it didn't add anything for me either and he
2: doesn't die that the thing if he died in that scene where he's he stood in um an observation tower yeah in in I the, thought he was going to get sniped the patrol base and he didn't he just he, well he, he was obviously so out of it he just and tucked and rolled rolled. Yeah. <laughs> i think that scene would have given a little bit would have been given a little bit more weight if he, if I he think perhaps so. died in there but it doesn't really add anything and it's a little bit bizarre because it goes on a little bit too long it does and, and another area where the film to, to round out my my criticisms uh, is a little bit irritating is the chaucy character himself and i don't know whether the character was written that way for him to be irritating for the viewer or it was just the way that that character was portrayed by the actor I, i'm weighing in on the former so he's the character itself is very naive idealistic
1: yeah
2: they encounter on a patrol uh a Viet Cong family and he's very trusting and he goes in full hearts and minds mode doesn't he he he's does like, yeah. chocolate do you want some chocolate it's good chocolate mm, um, delicious yeah. you know and he's like this kid's cute like
1: hello yeah that scene just was a sort of american
2: on. I'm here well yeah. we know this is it like we know that hearts and minds isn't going to work eventually in vietnam and hearts and minds is a very difficult counterinsurgency tactic pro tactic thank you to 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 get to work in an insurgency counterinsurgency mm. situation and him offering some chocolate isn't going to cut it but he's trying and it's kind of irritating that he's ignoring the sergeant and uh, Cowboy's character, the Vietnamese interpreter scout. I understand that it's written that way because yes, not only is Cowboy seen to be extremely vicious towards the Viet Cong, yep. beheading one of one of uh, the prisoners they take and, and seen torturing another in an interrogation. You're partially thinking how oh, he, he just sees everyone as the VC, and then um, the grizzled and and worn out sergeant also has a similar opinion way. He just doesn't care about these people It's Like anymore. it's their,
1: it's their war. Like you've got to do war, exactly. it their way. Yeah,
2: which was what yeah. which
1: was a train of thought at the time. Like, should the US pull Understandable. out?
2: Understandable if you've if you've been there. His characters had three um, mag teams shot from under him. He explains.
1: Yeah, exactly. So if anyone's going to know anything about the war, it's going to be him. But Chaucy just acts. I think he yeah, just acts
2: above it sometimes. I think it's interesting because you see him trying to be the hero in the hearts and minds situation, and then he goes. Give me a fire team, I'll cover them coming in. And he goes and covers a patrol that's yep. coming into the fire base. So he's trying to be a hero both ways in yeah. the fighting and also in the hearts and minds department. It's and bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's interesting. The character doesn't quite work for me. It just becomes a little bit grating the I way he so. discounts everyone's experience. And I think that's the that's the whole point. It's his decision to remain that leads to Bet Lancaster's
1: death at the end of the movie. Yeah, we see like old. Naked, Bert Lancaster for two seconds. Yeah. Oh never got that out of <laughs> like... yeah.
2: Not only did we get recounted the tale of him, of him uh, being given a blowjob, but we also get to see Bert Lancaster's bum. <laughs> Very odd. Yeah. But I think that's how it was written, and I, yeah. I think we're supposed to come away with the thought of, well, that was naive of him, um, mm-hmm. because he he's the survivor, and he's saved by uh, James Hong's character who drags him un, under a tree when he's wounded. That's it. Yeah. And, and Hong himself is killed, the, found dead later on. The only
1: bit I found really egregious, obviously having seen a lot of war movies now and having seen a lot of Nam films, I really hated that final scene. Spoilers, sorry for anyone who hasn't seen it. But there's this old... A bit late now. Yeah, sorry. There's this old <laughs> Vietnamese scout who half raises a rifle to Corsi and drops it. And I think he says something like, I'm going home, Charlie, if they'll let me. And he like, walks off. And I was like, oh, please. Yeah. That was so ham-fisted and corny. I'd rather they've just left that of him just walking off. It would have had way more impact. And if they're trying to like make an allegory to the way Vietnam ended, surely the Vietnamese soldier nearly killing all the Americans, but then the Americans just walking off and leaving like they did in Saigon or like they did when they de-escalated their troops in Vietnam. Yeah. That would have said way more than him saying that really corny line. Yeah, if he just watched him, watched him leave, that would have been powerful enough. I exactly. Think. That's where the movie falls down for me. That's why I think it felt very B-movie, because it was a bit like, oh, was it awful, Vietnam War? Like We know that anyway. It was bad. Like, come on. Yeah,
2: yeah. The film's just shown us how bad it was.
1: It just needed to be more at the end there. Right? It's all really sort of annoying. I suppose
2: a, the most interesting aspect of this film is it's probably the first anti-Vietnam War movie.
1: Yeah, I think it, considering it's the one and the first that's made, it's very anti-war. As I say, better than some of its parts. It's definitely watchable. You know, I didn't have any issues with the pacing or anything like that. Something about it just felt off, just felt B-movie-esque um, to me.
2: I think it's a matter of budget. That's that's what I think it comes down to. I think Another Million on Top might have uh, might have yeah. given a little bit more scale way. For instance, we don't really see any close-ups of the Viet Cong when they're attacking. No, we don't. No, we don't. Um, it's Very, it's, very uh, it's all night fighting, mm. pretty much, uh, which is fine. It works really effectively, and that's the that's reality of war as well. It's definitely a film to, to seek out if you're interested in Vietnam and that sub-genre of war films.
1: Definitely seek it out if you haven't seen it, um, if you're interested in that early part of the conflict. So that was Go Tell the Spartans, and thanks yet again for listening. And you can follow us on Twitter, find us on the website, fartnonfilm.com. Coming up on the show, we are recording an episode with Robert Lyman in early February about the 1961 film uh, The Long, The Short and The Tall um, with Richard Todd. So if you want to ask Robert any questions about that movie or about the troops in Burma, um, please do get involved in our Patreon. If you sign up, then we sometimes do this with our guests if they're up for it where we get our patrons to ask questions that we'll read out and get answered during the show. We've had some great questions in the past
2: um, and that's not the only perk we have up there. Each month we we offer up the opportunity to vote on a film that we're going to cover. Uh, we have lots of physical perks to say thank you as well for supporting us. Head over to fightingonfilm.com, click on the, the Patreon button and you can check all that out yourself. And if you'd like to become a, a member of our supporting cast, then it would be very much appreciated.
1: Yeah, thank you very much if you, if you choose to do so. And thanks for listening. Again again, we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye everyone.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50